Well, good morning. Hey, a few years ago, uh, when the Robinson campus was just getting started, we were meeting in a, uh, in a theater, and uh, our lease had run out on the theater. We had uh, secured the spot at PTI, but there was a weekend in between the theater and PTI, and we wondered, what in the world are we going to do? So Scott Arvey was a campus pastor at that time, and he said, I know what we'll do. We'll have a, we'll have a celebration service, and uh, we'll get a tank, and we'll find a fire hall in the area, and uh, we'll have some baptisms, some celebrations of everything that God has done to this point. And uh, it, was, it was their, like, their highest attended service and the best service ever that they had had. I was a little irritated because I wasn't involved in it, uh, but uh, that's the way it worked. So we thought, man, that was so cool for them. We're going to do that church-wide. Next week, uh, we'll have our um, celebration uh, service. It's a time of baptisms. We have it uh, the, three times a year, and one is the week before Thanksgiving, and it's a great time. Uh, to come, we won't have a, 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 a great worship. We won't have a sermon as such, but we'll have uh, individuals who will be able to give their testimony of what God has been doing in their life and following uh, Christ in baptism. And so we invite you to come. This is a great time to bring people you've been talking to about what it means to trust in Christ because they're going to hear from, I think there are 15 or 20 people being baptized, and they're going to hear all these different stories. It's beautiful because you hear all these different stories about how God uh, has, uh, has interrupted a life and brought people to himself from many, many different stages uh, of, their, of their journey. So we encourage you to be a part of that uh, next week. Father, thank you for the fact that you love us, that your love for us is unconditional. When we trust in Jesus Christ, there's nothing we can do to love you that, that you would love us more or love us less. We are, we are completely accepted by you. It's hard for us to, to grasp that sometimes. But we pray, Father, that we would get a glimpse of your grace and be able to live in the freedom that that grace affords. Thank you, Father, for our time today. We pray that you would bless us as we look into your word in Christ's name. Amen. For the past uh, several days, Scott Arve and I have been in uh, Panama. We started in the uh, western part of Panama in a city called David, and we were hosted by our missionary partners there, Wampi and Celia Mull. And for two days, uh, two evenings there, we did a marriage conference. Then we headed back to Panama City where we did a three-day leadership conference hosted by Mirko and Tracy Delabosich, longtime uh, ministry partners in, in Panama we spoke at their church there. Uh, we hosted, the journey hosted, about eight people from the States uh, for four days in that time as well. And we wanted to bring them in. We had about five people from Pittsburgh, a couple people from Oklahoma, a person from uh, California wanted to bring them in to show them firsthand of what God is doing in Anna, Panama, getting the kids out of the orphanage and getting them into the transition homes where they learn the love of Christ, the love of a family, uh, education, and, and a skill. And we wanted them to see that firsthand. And then after they left and went back to the States, uh, Scott and I stayed and we did a three-day uh, um, retreat with Word of Life uh, Panama. And we did uh, some teaching uh, with them and then also a lot of uh, informal interaction. Well, on one of our evenings there, we met with a young uh, wife who was separated uh, from her husband. And uh, Mirko uh, is always there to do translation. He does all the translation when we speak, he always tells me, uh, when, when I translate, I say what you say word for word. 
when I interpret, I take what you say and make it much better. Uh, so uh, <clears throat> some of my best sermons are in Spanish uh, after, after Mierko has interpreted them. So we spoke to this young wife and, and mother at length, and, and through tears she told us her story. And Admittedly, their, their marriage had not started out on a firm foundation, and, and the cracks in the beginning were now gaping crevices. And the feeling of aloneness and isolation, even when they were together, uh, kind of characterized their relationship. There was a di- desire to make the marriage work, but the fear that it was too late and even a lack of energy to try. The impact of separation and divorce would have on their children, they understood that. But again, they were at a a difficult uh, place. We talked to the husband the next morning and through his tears heard his side of the story. And he knew he had made uh, many mistakes. More than anything, he was uh, scared, just flat out scared of losing his wife and children. And so here are these two people, separated but broken and and at times uh, hard uh, even to function. Some of you are there, aren't you? I want to tell you the same thing I told them and what we've been trying to say through this entire series. Don't give up. There's just too much at stake. Honor God with your relationship, even when you don't feel like you have the energy to try. There are children involved, and you may feel numb to your spouse. But I want to tell you that God is a God who can restore, and He's a God who can transform, and He's a God who can renew your relationship. And God can can work through people who can help you change your actions and your habits that have delivered you to this point. So God can change you. Let Him. Submit your marriage to Him. and, and, And let Him give you the things that you need to do what He wants you to do. You know, it's interesting. We, As Christians, we trust God for eternity. We trust Him for the greatest thing. There's nothing bigger, is there, than, than trusting Him for eternity? And yet we have the harder time trusting Him with, with other things in our life. And, and marriage is part of that. So I just want to encourage you. Uh, you can trust Him with your relationship. You've trusted him with the greatest thing. Trust him with this relationship. Don't throw in the towel. There, there's just too much at stake. Because there's so much at stake, we've been involved in this series of sermons we've called Family Under Attack. And the purpose of the series has been twofold. First, we wanted to see from Scripture. This is our guide. This is God's inerrant, infallible uh, word. It's uh, his authority on life and living. We wanted to see what the Bible has to say about relationship and marriage and family. And then we also have encouraged all of us to apply what God has to say. That's the hard part, isn't it? Knowing is one thing, applying it is another. And so in this series, we've considered God's design for the family. We've considered biblical sexuality. We've considered some of the attacks on the family and marriage, divorce, living together, homosexuality. We've spent a couple weeks talking about uh, parenting and what that means and the responsibility that we have. Now, we all agree that in our country today, there are a lot of cultural and environmental things, external things that, uh, that are attacking uh, uh, marriage and uh, that are detrimental to family, marriage and family. And, and as Christians, we want to do everything we can uh, to protect the sanctity of marriage regarding the laws. 
But at the same time, our emphasis for this series has been, it is our responsibility. Because we get no uh, mandate from the Supreme Court to call our marriage quits. That's a personal decision. And no entity tells us uh, to have our kids in so many activities that we lose and forfeit uh, family time. And the government never requires a teen to have sex. The government never requires a couple to live together before marriage. External forces never make a husband commit adultery or get involved in pornography or give in to the temptations of homosexuality. That's, those are personal decisions. Now, we always like to blame other people, don't we? It's hard to take those responsibilities on. So we like to blame other people in our lives. We like to blame our parents. We like to bring a, blame our spouse. We like to bl- blame our upbringing. But uh, at the end of the day, it's our responsibility. We learned that blaming, by the way, uh, from our uh, first parents, Adam and Eve. You know those stories. When God uh, learned that Adam and Eve had sinned, he went to Adam. And he said, Adam, what have you done? And he said, it's not my fault. It's Eve's fault. It's the wife you gave me. And uh, Adam blamed Eve, and then Eve blamed the serpent. And, of course, the serpent, he didn't have a leg to stand on. <clears throat> so. <laughs> I, have to <laughs> I have to get that in every sermon series at least once. If Lori was in here, she would be going, ah. <laughs> we have to own our influence. I have to own my responsibility. Today, uh, as we wrap up this series, I want to I consider some questions that uh, you've sent in uh, during this uh, sermon series. We'll have time for three. Um, I'm going to go over them at kind of a 30,000-foot level. There are, there's a lot of there are books written on these questions, so we'll do the best we can. Email me with uh, further questions that you have, and I'll try to get back to you as soon as I can Uh, regarding uh, the best answers or resources for you. So here's the question number one. Uh, One person said, I was uncomfortable, I was not comfortable with the way you handled uh, abuse in uh, a a marriage. Shouldn't abuse be grounds for divorce? Well, obviously, abuse is unconscionable. And people who abuse their spouse, usually men, physically or emotionally, need professional help. Something is not right going on in their hearts and their minds. Many times abuse has been in their background, but again, there are no excuses. We have to own up to what we're doing today. And in those cases, we want to get you to professional counseling so that to to help you break the cycle. Now, here at the Bible Chapel, we believe that the Bible is God's inerrant infallible word, and it's the final authority for life and living, and we have nothing to say unless it comes from God's word. I'm not here to share my opinions on life and living. I'm here to present God's word, and sometimes it's hard, and sometimes we don't like to hear it. The Bible only gives two reasons for divorce, adultery and desertion of a non-believer. Those are the only two reasons it gives. Adultery is the breaking of the marriage covenant. The desertion of a non-believer says if he leaves, then let him go. I do think Peter 
addresses abuse in chapter 3, verse 7 of his first letter when he says this, Husbands, in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Certainly, Peter is not talking about wives being weaker in any way, intellectually, emotionally, or spiritually. We are all on level ground under the cross. There is no Greek or free, male or female. We are all heirs with Jesus Christ. So the weaker here has to be physical. Normally, the wife is weaker physically than the husband, and so the husband, with his strength, could do some things he shouldn't. And Paul says that should never happen. That hinders your relationship with God. But there's no instruction regarding this being a reason for divorce. Personally, with three daughters, I wish it did. Because if that would ever happen to any one of my daughters, uh, you know, I, I would have to check myself or be held back by someone who would do something like that. But again, I'm not here to present my opinions. I'm here to represent God's Word. Now, having said that, whenever there is abuse in a relationship, the elders of this church, the leaders of this church, will do everything we can to help you get out of that relationship and get safety and have separation. We will make sure we'll do everything we can to get you out of that into a safe place because we would never, ever advise a person to stay in a relationship where they're going to be hurt physically or emotionally. So we would get that separation, we would confront the person who is doing the abusing, and we would do our best to get that person the counseling that uh, normally he needed. And, and a an abuser and the person who is being abused needs professional counseling. And our aim is always for healing, for restoration, and for forgiveness. Each situation, we believe, should be taken one at a time. Again, I want to emphasize, no one, we would never advise anyone to go back into that dangerous relationship, nor would we want you to put your children at risk in that relationship. We would want to walk with you and help you and pray with you because you're going to have to make some difficult decisions. And if the abuser refuses to change, you're going to have to make some extremely difficult decisions. Earlier I, earlier I said that there are times when we see these characteristics in a dating relationship. And I do believe that many times couples who are going to get married have such rose-colored glasses on that they do not really see the person they're getting ready to marry. And in premarital counseling, I look at couples and I say, look, see that, couple, see that person sitting next to you. Would you marry them right now if you knew they would never change? Because they may never change. And we always think as soon as a person says, I do, they're going to change. So we, we want to make certain we have the, 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 the proper premarital structure in place to help people walk through and get prepared for marriage. So I do think there are times when you see these characteristics in the premarital time, but not always. 
And I got an email this week from someone I really uh, uh, appreciate and admire and, and been partners with in ministry here. And I want to read what she said because I, I, I want to make sure we're on the same page in this very critical issue. She said, as a survivor of domestic abuse, I was, I'm disheartened by something you said during their parenting sermon. You commented that five years into the marriage when you were experiencing uh, violence, one should have, no, quote, should have known the warning signs during dating. That's not always the case. The potential abuser doesn't always reveal his true colors, even if the dating period was long. All abuse is about control, physical, mental, verbal, financial, sexual, and even spiritual. Once someone says, I do, the horror of control can begin slowly and insidiously until it becomes escalated, and he or she finally might call out for help. Your comment implied the victim is responsible for the abuse by not knowing better during the dating period. And unless one has experienced it personally or someone close to them, most people do not understand domestic violence in all its forms. If anyone under, uh, so I, I appreciate what she, has, what she says there. Now, if anyone understood me to say that, that um, somehow the victim is responsible, I, I stand corrected. That's not what I meant to say. But I do want to say that during that premarital time, go make certain you are surrounding yourself with people who know you and care for you and who are objective, not your parents. They're subjective. They never want you to marry that bum because he is always a bum. <laughs> never going to be good enough for you. But get some objective people in your life to really show you and speak to you about some things that you might not see. You've got to have those, those people. All right? So we're all on the same page on that. We want to help anyone uh, going through uh, that type of situation. Get them out. Uh, make sure they are uh, safe and away from danger. And then work toward uh, restoration, knowing that there are going to be some difficult decisions along the way. All right, second question. It seems like Christians pick and choose verses to support what they want Scripture to say. Christians would never, never do that. Uh, <clears throat> for instance, Leviticus chapter 20, 13 says, If a man lies with a man as with a woman, both have committed an abomination. So Christians are against homosexuality. But before, Leviticus, but before that, Leviticus 19, 19 says, You shall not wear clothing mixed with two kinds of material. So if Christians are against homosexuality... Why aren't they against mixed blends? It's a good question, isn't it? It's a great question. Because I noticed some of you wearing mixed blends today. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God began to grow this great nation, starting with Abraham, this great nation of Israel. And Israel was the nation through whom God would send his son, the Israel of the nation of Israel was to be a light to, to all the rest of the world. It was a theocracy. It was ruled by God alone. And God gave his, his laws to this great nation. And there were three strands of law that God gave. There was the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. When God gave the nation of Israel, the civil law, again, living in a theocracy. We good? Good. When God gave the civil law, living in a theocracy, He was giving the law regarding how you interact with your neighbors. So in the civil law, there were things like you borrow your neighbor's oxen 
and as you have it plowing your field, it dies. So what's your responsibility to, for, to, to, to repay your neighbor? How much do you repay him? Uh, or, you know, the eye, the, the eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth type thing. Interaction, how, uh, suing each other, lawsuits, how those are taken care of. So again, it was a theocracy, and we had the civil law. Then there was also the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law is sometimes called the religious law. And ceremonial law was how you go to the temple, how you worship. The days of the, the, the different days of feasts that you're required to do. The sacrifices that you give. In fact, the first of Leviticus is just a description of the different types of sacrifices you can bring uh, to the temple. Um, uh, going and, and, and presenting those sacrifices to the temple and how the priest is to, is to do all that. Then there is the moral law. The moral law deals with our relationship uh, to God, not, not as uh, in a theocr- uh, theocracy, but, but how we respond to God with all of our lives. And the moral law is summed up in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are like a summation of, of the rest of Scripture as it's unpacked. Okay? Three strands of law. The civil law continued to exist through the Old Testament until Christ came. And when Jesus came, he, he came through the nation of Israel, and there's still a future, I believe, we believe, for the nation of Israel. But now, the light to the world is not the nation of Israel. When Jesus comes, it becomes the what? The church. We are the light of the world. We are a city on hill. That'd be a good song, wouldn't it? <laughs> so we have to let our light shine. And so we now are that light. But we're living in the United States. We just, we're in Panama. We have missionaries all over the world. And so there's not a theocracy. We live in a democracy. And we're now in the New Testament to obey the laws of our land. So the civil law in the Old Testament, while it has great principles, the civil law of the Old Testament stops. We don't go by what the Old Testament says regarding the civil law. That make sense? Then there is the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was to remind, uh, for instance, let me go back, the blend of, of uh, fabric. That was to remind Israel that you're not to mix fabrics and, that's the illustration, you're not to mix with other nations. You're to stay pure. You're to stay the light, holy, separate that God has called you to be. It was an illustration for that. Then the ceremonial law. We used the, in the Old Testament, they used to take their, their, their sheep, their lambs, their goats, their bulls, their birds, and they would sacrifice him at the temple. That was all in preparation for the final sacrifice. Remember, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. It was, it was, a, it was a reminder that God was going to send a perfect sacrifice. It was just a, a preparation period. And so Christ came, and he became the one-time for all-time sacrifices. So in, in the New Testament, we don't, we don't go by the theocratic law, nor do we sacrifice animals any longer. Make sense? But the moral law continues through. 
It transfers. From the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, why would we say that? Because the moral law summed up in the Ten Commandments is repeated in the New Testament. The New Testament gives us the same commands that we find summarized in the, in the, in the Ten Commandments. In fact, in fact, every commandment except one is repeated verbatim in the New Testament. That one that's not repeated is remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. The Sabbath was a day of physical rest, but it was also a time when a worker who got paid at the end of the day, a worker said, I am trusting God to provide all I need. And I'm take, he commanded me to take this day off for physical rest, but also spiritual rest, and trusting in him to provide what I need, because I'm not going to get paid at the end of the day. And whatever I didn't do today, will I be able to catch up with that business tomorrow? So the Sabbath was a time when you trusted God and rested in Him and said, God, I depend on you. Well, in the New Testament, every day is our Sabbath rest. That's what Hebrews tells us. Hebrews says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever enters into God's rest, God's rest also rests from their works. So that Sabbath rest for us in the New Testament is trusting in Jesus Christ alone as the only way we can have a relationship with the living God. Certainly, we, need, we still need physical rest, and we see that. Uh, principle and throughout, the, throughout Scripture. We see God rested on the seventh day. We don't have to have the Tenth Commandment to, or the Sabbath commandment to do that. And we see that Jesus uh, got away and, 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 uh, and uh, restored, restored himself physically and emotionally as well. So the rest part of it, we still have to do. But the Sabbath rest, the spiritual rest of the Old Testament, not seen in the New Testament. I've taken way too much time on that. The point I'm trying to make is here, that the civil law stops, ceremonial law stops, and the moral law continues. And the commandments regarding sexuality are restated in the New Testament. So someone can't say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Leviticus talks about, you know, don't boil a kid in its mother's milk and don't do the mixed blends and then there's, and then there's sexual stuff. So, so you're just picking and choosing. No, I'm not picking and choosing. The moral law, while the civil law stops and the ceremonial law stops, the moral law continues. In the New Testament, the, moral, the Old Testament moral law transfers to the New Testament. So we are still under the moral law. And when there's a commandment in the New Testament regarding sexuality, that's just been transferred from the Old Testament because God never changes. The laws He gave us then are still, still uh, applicable and, uh, and the expectation for us to obey them today. Make sense? Okay. If it doesn't, uh, email me. Third question. 
Uh, am I welcomed here, or is this church only for perfect people? <laughs> you know, um, I, I, uh, I love uh, teaching about uh, marriage and parenting. I have a passion for that. And when I do, I'm, I'm always aiming what I'm saying at those who are married and uh, those who may be contemplating uh, uh, calling it quits and divorce and challenging people not to do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm warning you of the things that might happen if, if you follow that path and the, the uh, devastation that it can have on children. And uh, the, 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 the God hates divorce. I'm talking about parenting uh, things. We're, we're, we're holding God's word up as the standard, right? This is the only standard. I'm not far from a perfect father or, 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 or husband or, or parent in any way. I just have the privilege of, of, of pointing us all to God's standard. If there was a sign out front that said, you know, no sinners are broken people allowed, then we, this would be an empty uh, worship center. And it's interesting how God, how Christ always met people in their sin, right? Whether it was a woman at the well who was, was, had been married five times and living with a guy, or the, the, the prostitute who came and poured oil on him, or, or Zacchaeus, the hated chief tax collector. You see, Jesus, he always, he always meets us right where we are, doesn't he? but he doesn't leave us there. And so as you come in, we want to we want to we want to we want to let you know you are welcomed. And by God's grace, you can change. Cuz you don't want to stay in your sin. None of us do. And we want to warn you of that. So, I know that for some of you, it's been like a beating every week when we've talked about you know, the challenges of children, of divorced couples, and, and, and divorce, and, and, the, and some of you struggle with the uh, t- tremendous struggles with the sin of homosexuality. Some of you living together, you think, oh, great, 85% people don't stay together, so what, what option does, you know, what kind of chance does that give us? Here's what I want to say. I'm not, I'm not trying to make you feel worse. I want to point you to the grace of God. And he has the power to heal, and he has the power to restore, and he has the power to make certain that your life is, is significant, and you can be everything God wants. Aren't you glad that God forgives, and that he restores, and that he allows us... <clears throat> What, whatever we've done and wherever we've been. He meets us there and then if any man's in Christ, he's a what? He's a new creation. Old is gone, the new has come. And that's what we've been trying to emphasize through this. You've been divorced. You've made some mistakes in the past. Now from today on, you can know God's grace, his forgiveness, his restoration. Now you can do this thing right. 
You're worried about your children from divorce? Pray that God will protect them and, and go to them and talk to them and let them know of God's grace and His love and your love for them. Again, God meets us where we are, but He doesn't leave us there. He takes us to where He wants us to be. The church is like a hospital for sick people. And you wouldn't go to a hospital and uh, be admitted to a hospital and then just lay in a bed and, 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 and they don't do any, any procedure on you, right? What good would that do? So when we come into a spiritual hospital, we want to be able to get some help. And, and it's God's Word. Sometimes it's hard. But it's God's Word that gives us the help we need to do what He's calling us to do. And it's His Spirit, as a believer, it's His Spirit that lives within us that enables us to do that because we can't do this on our own. So before we take communion, take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 103. And I want to just read through this psalm. Think about God's great grace as we get ready to take communion. And think about the tremendous grace that God has showed us in Christ. Psalm 103 is a psalm of David. And he says, praise the Lord, O my soul. He is, he is, he is telling himself, it's time to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul, a self-exhortation. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not of his benefits. Here, here David says, I want to praise God. I want to live a life of praise. I want to praise God with my inmost being. So I'm going to remind myself, I'm going to motivate myself by thinking about God's benefits. Now, God's not a God to be used for his benefits. He's a God to be worshipped because of all his works. And that's what David wants to do here. Look at his benefits. He forgives all my sins. Circle the word all. Not some. Not, not some of those surface acceptable sins. By the way, they're not really surface and they're not really acceptable. We just think they are. But he forgives all my sin. He heals all your diseases. I don't think David here is talking physically. He's talking spiritual diseases that, that eat away at the heart. He crowns, he redeems your life from the pit. That word redeem is, a, is an Old Testament term, kinsman redeemer. You're in trouble, you can't pay your debt, or you're, you're, you're in a difficult situation. There's no social security, there's nothing to bail you out, there's no bailouts from the government at that time. You've got to have a kinsman redeemer. You have to have someone who's related to you, who has the resources to come and and pull you out of that situation. And God uses that word to say, I am your kinsman redeemer. I got all the resources. And I'm coming to pull you out of the pit. Crown you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things. We like to satisfy our desires sometimes with, with sinful stuff, don't we? But God always satisfies our desires with good things. So that your youth is renewed like eagles. Uh, so an eagle is a, is a bird that continues to keep its strength throughout its life. Pretty cool. And God renews your youth like the eagle that continues to be strong. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made his, known his ways to Moses, to, uh, his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate. And gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Man, underline that verse. It's repeated. 
Those, those four things are repeated several times in the Psalms and, and in, in, uh, in the uh, Deuteronomy the Pentateuch as well, first uh, books of the Bible. Um, he, is, he is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. He will not always accuse nor really harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. What word is that? It's God's mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve, his mercy. Or repay us according to our iniquity. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children. You know how much you love your kids. It doesn't even register to how much God loves us. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. He knows we're not going to do this thing perfectly. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our frailties. He knows our propensity to sin. He knows our temptations. He knows we're dust. And he loves us anyway. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it's gone. Its places remember no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is on those who what? Fear him. Who obey him who want to follow him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey the precept, his precepts. The Lord has established his stone in the heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you who do his mighty, mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, his, all his heavenly host, you, who, uh, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. What a beautiful reminder of what Jesus has done for us. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve because of Jesus. We have complete forgiveness in the work that is finished. And that's what we celebrate right now. Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Thank you that you have forgiven all of our sin as a believer, past, present, and future. So help us not to live in it. Help us not to be satisfied in it. Help us to always be convicted when we are not where we should be with you. And remember all that Jesus has done and paid so that we could stand before you out of the pit, redeemed. Do your work, Lord, as we take the bread and the cup. And just remind us during this time of your great love and your great grace and your great mercy and your completed work in our life through Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.